Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Hey guys, Richard Diaz here, and I have the pleasure of bringing on the show today with me, Amber, am I going to mess this up? Hedrick. Hedrick, you're right. (laughs) And Amber is on the Machete Madness Pro Team, and tell us again what the, the web thing is. My web series is called Bro CR Review. Bro CR Review. Yeah. You know, I actually think I I, I visited that. And you might have. I think I have. You did an interview with Miguel Medina. Correct. Yes. Yeah, it was good. You did a good job with that. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be uh, out in uh, California this weekend. Well, I will be. So. We'll yes, be you will. You had better be. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow morning. <laughs> yep, my my flight's in a couple hours, so I'll uh, I'll be head there soon. <laughs> very very good. All right, so. Here's what's going to happen. I've got some people that through social media has posted some questions they'd like me to respond to. And this is open mic time, so you're welcome to chime in, provide answers as you feel are necessary or how these questions may affect you, and maybe embellish on the question if you think you should, embellish on the answer if you think you can. And let's knock this stuff out. So, And and incidentally, I want to conclude by putting out to the audience what I consider to be some tips that are going to make a big difference in their OCR running, race pace, and finish times. And by the way, you don't have to be an OCR in order to appreciate what I'm going to tell you because uh, this has all got to do with the way you run regardless of what you're doing when you're running. Absolutely. You like it? I like it. Let's do this. All right. All right. So let's start with uh, some questions. And I want to start with the first one. And First being because Cody Higgs of Nashville, Tennessee, threw this out me a while back and never got around to it. And Cody has been out to visit. We've done some work together. I did a VO2 on him. Pretty much the same thing that you're set up for tomorrow, Amber. Woohoo! Yeah, and he still likes me, so it must have been okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, he he shot this out to me, and here look, we're just going to put this out there for conversation. He said. It's gotten warmer here. My heart rate was staying at VO2 max level from where I tested with you, which is about 180 beats per minute, but I wasn't feeling the burn. Maybe he's going to vote for Trump. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, goes, I wasn't feeling the burn like I would during the winter, probably because during the winter my pace would have been 630 versus what it was today, which is around 830 pace. And I know it makes sense to have a lower heart rate when it's colder um, or take me longer to get warmed up. 
but how does this affect lactic acid buildup? Does the body have an easier time clearing lactic acid at a slower pace? I'm able to hold 180 plus for much longer in this weather. I don't even realize it sometimes. All right, so this is some interesting questions. Hey, lots of questions there, yeah. You want to handle it? Uh, I'll let you take a stab at this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, first of all, being cold or being hot initially is not going to influence your heart rate. However, as you run longer in either of those regards, you're, especially at the heart rate he's talking about, you're going to start finding that you're dehydrating. And I think there's a lot of uh, conclusions or reasons why he's, he's saying what he's saying. But at the end of the day, 180 beats per minute for most everybody is a little hot to be running. And when I'm saying hot, I'm saying that your pace is aggressive. And if you're not seeing the pace and you're seeing the heart rate, that's pointing to some circumstances beyond the weather as well. And so my first blush would be when he's telling me it's hotter and his heart rate's higher and his pace is slower, that tells me that we need to address hydration status and or look at what's been going on the prior days leading into that particular episode. If he's habitually running at 180 beats per minute, uh, I'm a little concerned about that. I'd like to see him holding a little less heart rate while he's out for a long run. And in respect to the lactic acid buildup, well, the point of the matter is is that at 180 beats per minute, if that is over his threshold, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm going to take a wild guess and assume that it, it's way above threshold, the relative ability to reduce that lactic acid is not going to be tied to the weather. It's going to be tied to what his heart rate is telling us. So at the end of the day, what we do is a respiratory exchange ratio, which is telling us how much lactate is being produced in the muscles relative to that particular heart rate. So it's not so much that heart rate is creating the, well, I guess it is, but at the end of the day, you can still produce a lot of lactate at a lower heart rate, a higher heart rate. It's just a matter of, and while we're testing, we're marking the production of lactic acid relative to heart rate. They're not necessarily akin to one another. And I, I caught myself because obviously as the intensity goes up, then so does the lactic acid production. So uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. But at the end of the day, without trying to sound too confusing, uh, I think he's fetching at things that are not relevant. I, I think that the weather initially is not necessarily the concern. It's being out in the weather for an extent of time that's going to make a big difference. Either way, whether it be cold or hot. Yeah, especially with this heart rate being that high yep. throughout the whole run. Yep. And uh, I'm going to let you take this one. You said that you, you were friends with this lady as well. Her name is Alicia Deloisio. Did I get it right? Did, yes. did, I, did I do it? you gotta, okay. you, you got to do it slow and roll your O's. Oh, I can't roll my O's. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a weightlifter, and what she said was she's interested in advice on finding a solid running coach. What kind of things do you look for? Fantastic. Uh, this is definitely a good one for me, too, because I come from a bodybuilding background. I was a former figure competitor and gymnast, so quite muscly. Um, I'm still, I always claim to be a meathead at heart. So that's why I, I came to you, Rich, actually, for help was I was asking around, asking some of my pro team members, asking some of my other 
you know, friends that run obstacle course racing and what were they looking for and who have they used in the past. Luckily, um, being a part of Machete Madness, uh, I got to meet Miguel and he raved about, you know, your work and how much you've done with him and preventing injuries and getting over injuries, which I'm struggling with right now. So if I'm going to pay someone and have someone help me, I want to know I've got the best. So I looked for, you know, someone that's knowledgeable, someone that I could trust their work and speak to people who have used them before and get those good reviews. Anybody can go on Google and find someone, but if I've never spoken to somebody that's actually used that person, I'm not going to trust a review off the internet. So I lucked out, had somebody I could actually go to that's worked with you, and that's how you and I came to be. I'm blushing. (laughs) Well, it's the truth. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. You've helped me so far. My injuries are getting somewhat better. Um, They're nagging, so now it's just a matter of fixing that form of mine that's awful and getting me over that hump and seeing where, where we can go. Cool. All right. Well, let me, can I touch on this a little bit as as well? Absolutely. Uh, I am very critical of coaches and not so much because I'm in this business, but I've had the opportunity through my podcast to interview some of the guys that are highly respected in the industry. And I don't think they deserve the respect, quite frankly, some of them. Because of where we are time and space, there's so much opportunity to get some great detail on, on the outcome of training that guys that are like completely discarding the potential opportunities that exist, it, it really just wears me out. And what I'm talking about is all the metrics you can gather through GPS, through heart rate, through power these days, um, cadence, all these different bits of information that you're able to gather which really, really tell the story. Anyway, I have this list that I gathered from Alberto Salazar. And Alberto Salazar arguably is one of the best running coaches in the world today. He has some of the best runners in the world today, Galen Rupp, to name one. And he created a list of 10 things that really make a difference and are really important when you're training. And one of the things that he said was this. He said, embrace technology. If you don't have enough knowledge behind what you're doing, you're not going to run well or you're going to injure yourself. With the Internet, GPS, phones, advanced heart rate monitors, you can now be coached individually even while you run. I have an anti-gravity treadmill in my garage. I thought that was kind of fun. Use this knowledge and tools that are out there. So, In essence, what he said, and I really loved hearing him say, is that embracing this technology and using this information allows you to be coached individually no matter where you are. And so this is kind of what I do. The advantage that I have is I'm an informed observer, I guess is what what I'd like to think of myself as. I can look at the data, and relative to the information I'm seeing, it really paints a picture for me. I get a really good sense of what's going on and what needs to occur next. And the guys that are out there that like to believe that they can throw you a program that you have to blindly follow, and once a week they'll have this conversation with you where they pat you on the back and say, you're doing great. Uh, Okay, back off a little bit. How do you feel? I mean, they're really flying blind. And they get a lot of credit because they had what I refer to as the study of one. They might have had an an amazing career on their own regard, 
so he's great, so if I do what he does, I should be great too. Yeah, and that doesn't always work. It does not work. Hardly ever does that work. I coach Hunter McIntyre. Give you an example of the workout we did yesterday. We did interval repeats on the high-speed treadmill where I had him running at 12 miles per hour on an 8% grade and then immediately jump off the treadmill, pick up 60-pound dumbbells, and do a farmer carry down to the end of my block, bring them back, and then do chin-ups, and then jump back on the treadmill and repeat. We did this for, I want to say, about 55 minutes without rest. That's what I'm doing tomorrow, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we could try it, you know. What the hell? I don't care. We'll give it a shot and see how it works out. But, I mean, you know, someone was, and I, I know this has happened more than once, where, like, I might post a video of the workout on uh, social media, and people will chime in and go, yeah, that's great. I'm going to try that tomorrow. So, you know, <laughs> good luck, man. You just don't have the juice for that kind of work, right? So the work's got to be pretty much unique to the individual. I'm an opportunist. I like to go with whatever I see is presented. So if I start noticing that you're banging it out there and you're getting it done and the times are dropping – and all this is falling in our favor, we're moving on. We're getting on to the next little little bit of work. So I really am big on embracing the technology, and I would say that to chime in on that particular question, I would go with someone that is really looking at a lot of detail, especially if you're not going to see them day to day. And one more thing I'll say is that I find that I can do a better job informing an athlete from a distance through the Internet through these metrics than I could if I was on a bicycle next to them for the very simple reason that I'm not able to see this information as it's unfolding. I may notice that their form is faltering and I can bitch at them a little bit about that. But at the end of the day, I can sit down and review data much more effectively after the fact than I can while it's going off. I agree. I mean, the videos, you know, you did for me, you paused, you drew lines, you were able to you know, stop all that. You can't stop me in mid-stride if you're next to me and say, oh, wait, you're doing this. So I think that's a great valid point that, you know, being able to have that video um, capabilities nowadays is huge, especially for a co- running coach because they need to be able to see you even if they're not next to you. Well, beyond that, I could tell you that I stand next to a treadmill every day and watch people's feet. It's the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> However... I really can't get a good sense of what's going on until I run video and then I slow it all down and and break it apart. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get a good sense of what's happening. I mean, obviously, uh, again, I'm a trained observer. I can look at it and get a better sense than maybe most people could. But at the end of the day, until I get a chance to really slow it down and look at it, it's not my best guess. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's kind of move on here. Got a couple more. Um, I'm going to let you handle this one, too, if you don't mind. Right. Sure. We've got a gentleman by the name of Miles Keller. Miles wants to know, do emotional events affect training? I'm assuming that, let's just say, just broke up with a girlfriend, had a divorce, dog died, something along those lines. How does it affect training, and what do you do about it? So I'm going to let you handle that. Okay. Yeah, I like this one. I've had I've had this, um, I get asked this question a lot because of my background, being a single mom and everything. So if he's looking at, you know, the emotional aspect of a divorce, which I am as well, or, you know, a uh, breakup, it's, it's that meme I always see floating around Facebook. I'm training to be your hottest ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend. You know, that should just jumpstart you and give you something else to focus on. 
um, you should really just take that energy and, you know, take those emotions and re, I don't want to say that, put it back into yourself, use it for good, don't let it pull you down. Um, that's, that's kind of how I've always worked it. Um, when something bad happens, you know, sure, I, you know, I poo-poo for a little bit. It's, oh, poor me, okay. Snap out of it, Amber. Let's get back to it, you know, back to the grind and refocus that energy on something good and useful. And you'll see after, you know, an hour, two-hour long run, you know, hey, you know what? I feel better. I don't, I'm not as stressed anymore. That thing that happened doesn't seem to be bothering me as much now because you were able to clear your mind wear your body out so it can't just sit there and run and run and run and focus on the bad thing that happened. Now, if it's, you know, something more severe, a loss of a loved one, something like that, obviously that could have more of an impact. But again, it's it's really wrapping your mind around, you know, okay, this happened. You can only control what you can control. And again, refocusing and finding that center point in yourself to find something else to kind of drive you and push you forward. Hmm. Well, I, I got to tell you that Number one, people that are trying to lose weight, the best way to lose weight is go through a divorce. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. if you if you think that your significant other is getting a little out of shape and you want to sort that out, kick him to the curb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, you know, just he doesn't have or she doesn't have to know that you're planning on picking him back up in about a month and a half. Uh, <laughs> they've dropped, you know, 15. Yeah, when they start looking better, you know. <laughs> But stress really does have a big influence, I think, hormonally as well as emotionally. So you, you can – stress hormones are – you know, your cortisol levels are through the roof, and all these things are going on. You're not sleeping well. Just all this stuff starts to get after you, and it will interrupt your performance. I think a lot of what you said is good advice. You just want to look for the positives, try to make something out of it as opposed to letting it take you down. I mean, really, you don't have any choice, do you? Yeah, you got to put one foot in front of the other. Yep, you got to suck it up, right? So I don't know. It's it's a tough call all around. It just depends on the nature of the thing. And I hope my wife doesn't kick me to the curb after she hears this. <laughs> <laughs> However, that's what we have to say about that. All right, then I've got a guy. Uh, again, I apologize if I butcher these names, but his name is Ryan Wisniewski. I think I got it right. And Ryan is actually coming to see me as well. And so he wanted to preempt the visit by asking a few questions, and they're good ones. He's got actually a list of questions. Oh, good. So he says, what should he look for from a VO2 max test? And he asked, is there such thing as a good or a bad test? Any warning signs that we are an, an unqualified person, he said. Uh-huh. All right, so let's do, let's deal with those first. Okay. First of all, what I look for in a VO2 test is not what would seem to be the obvious thing because VO2 max conjures up that it's almost pass or fail relative to the top-end number that you create. Just for those that aren't comfortable with what this all means, VO2 max suggests the maximum volume of oxygen your body can process relative to your mass measured in kilos of body weight per minute. I know that's a big mouthful. Yeah. But but in essence, try to think of your body as a cylinder. And in order for this cylinder to function properly, it requires oxygen. And the more oxygen you can draw into it, the more potential you have to function. So this is measured again in milliliters of oxygen per kilo of body weight per minute. 
So the more milliliters of oxygen you can turn over per minute, the greater potential you have for fitness. So when you start talking about these stud athletes that have these really high VO2 max scores, and when you have this conversation, names like Lance Armstrong back in the day come up, yep. uh, Miguel Indurain, some of the great cyclists of the world, all these guys with these really, really high numbers are essentially what we, we call like an, a badge of honor, right? You Ah, I blew an 85. Wow, that's a big number. And it is a big number. And so the question being, what do I look for? I look for not the VO2 score, because this is not something that I'm going to have as much influence over as other information that travels along the way, meaning anaerobic or lactate threshold. This is the metabolic turn point. This is going to indicate to us where this person has gone away from being efficient, efficient meaning being able to process a lot of fat as an energy store or getting into the sugar stores. Mm-hmm. And so this metabolic turn point is important, and it's something that we can influence far more so than this VO2 max score. So, for example, let's just say, and in the case of this individual, I know he's racing, I know he's training hard, and so he's probably already in pretty decent shape. The likelihood that I'm going to turn him into something else, meaning that if he blew like a 50, for example, mm-hmm. odds are he's not going to turn into a 70. Or if he's a 70, he's not going to turn into an 85. We're not looking for those big jumps in the VO2 score. Now, there are things you can do that will improve your VO2, but not by big, big margins. Now, your threshold, on the other hand, is something that's very malleable, and it can be adjusted, and it can be improved upon over time. And it can actually fall apart over time, depending on your consistency in training and the application of training. All these things are very big in influencing how that metabolic turn point is adjusted. So that's what I look for. I look for metabolic turn point, and I look for the potential for fitness, but I look at that as a secondary concern. Makes sense. All right, so the other thing he asked was, any warning signs that we are uh, unqualified? Well, the obvious warning sign would be that the VO2 score is really low. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a certain amount of VO2 score that's required to support life. And when you start teetering around that value, we're talking about in and around 15 to 20 milliliters of O2 per kilo body weight per minute. Okay. And you seem to get stuck around there as an adult. That's a really bad sign. Incidentally, I had an episode like that with my attorney. Oh, no. Yeah. When I first met him, I was barking at him about how he was getting out of shape and he needed to, you know, he needed to address it because the guy's a desk jockey. He spends most of his life sitting in front of a desk or in front of books or sitting in court, and he just really never has time to take care of himself. So I suggested to him that I do a VO2 test just to get a sense of where he's at, and the number was so low that I was concerned. I mean, realized, too, this guy's an attorney and I was going to train him, and I thought, if I kill this guy or... <laughs> yeah, you're in some big trouble. <laughs> yeah, or if I give him a heart attack, we're going to be in court together. And so I, I told him, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a month. And if these numbers don't improve in the course of a month, I'm sending you to a cardiologist. Yeah. In the case of that month, his VO2 score improved by 300%. Wow. I mean, absolutely turned the corner. I guess part of it was I put the fear of God in him. 
I say it scares the shit out of you. Oh, yeah. Well, I let them know. I was like, this is not good, and this needs to be addressed, or you're short for this planet. And so we went to work, and it wasn't crazy. I mean, I trained him like three days a week, and it was pretty much a typical fitness regimen. But we made big, big headway on his fitness. And this was many years ago, and to this day, whenever I need a lawyer, God help you if you're on the other side, because he's got my back like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, well, you should. You probably saved his life. Yeah. And uh, by the way, you'll see in my office when you come tomorrow, I have a picture of him holding up a T-shirt with my logo on it on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So he really has been thankful for that for that cause. But anyway, the respect to being unqualified, absolutely. I don't know if unqualified is the term I would use, but absolutely deconditioned and some red lights flashing. Yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. All right, then the other question he had, was, again, there was a couple. He says, with a limited budget, what would you prioritize a personalized running plan or form assessment? Are there benefits to running plan if form is corrupt? Now, I'm just reading it the way he wrote it. So, sure. so in essence, what he's asking me, I think, is what would I choose first? Mm-hmm. A running plan that I thought was a good one or a form assessment? And assuming that he's paying for each of those. And what would be the benefits of a running plan if form is corrupt? I think he's almost answering his own question, isn't he? I think so, too. Yeah. Given who we're talking to, and that being me, I'm always going to opt to correct the flaws before I start concerning myself with how much of it I'm going to do. Of course. So right. Otherwise, you wind up in the boat I'm in, and then you're just hurt. And now I'm, now, like you said, you know, we're trying to go backwards from where we're at to correct things. Right. Right. And we're, you know, obviously we're going to visit this type of thing a lot in the course of this conversation. And people that are tired of hearing me say it, get over yourself. We're we're going to do this anyway. (laughs) Okay. So then the other question he had was, what are your thoughts on training with a weighted vest? I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this. And his question was, does this hinder performance if there is uncertainty in form? So I guess I'm going to handle this a couple ways. I want your opinion on all this. Sure. Okay, first of all, I wrote a training protocol for a company that produces weighted vests 10 years ago. The training program that I wrote actually went global, and it was done for a management company that owns health clubs around the world. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to do a fitness class with weighted vests. Oh, And what was unique about this vest was the vest stops right at your sternum. It doesn't drape down to your hips like a lot of the vests do. So this vest, because of the way it was stationed on your chest, as opposed to being draped down to your hips, presented a really interesting opportunity in that it really caused you to engage your core with every movement that you made. Now, a lot of people are loading themselves up with a lot of weight and using it as a training protocol. And it doesn't quite have the same influence that this unique vest had. But given the sport of OCR, where you're challenged to carry loads uphill for considerable distances, I like to call this challenge-specific work. It's something that you need to do in the sport. It's something you need to get comfortable with. So I think there's absolutely reasons why you would do it. Now, the question about whether it hinders performance, 
relative to form, I would not be looking for great running form while I'm wearing a heavy vest. And my focus in training would not be speed wearing that vest. It'd be more a function of power. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different component. So I just think that it, the weighted vest has its place in training, but I wouldn't want to sidle it up with proper running mechanics. I agree. I mean, I use I use weighted carries in my training now. You know, I'll throw a, a rec bag on my back and I'll, you know, climb the stairs for you know, five minutes at a time or hike the treadmill up to 15% and I'll hike with it on my back. But you know, obviously we already know my running form is pretty terrible. So I'm not running with it, but I'm doing it to one practice carrying that extra load. So when I go to a Spartan or a battle frog, you know, I can be prepared for what they're going to throw at me. But like you said, it's the power. How long can I go carrying that? You know, my grip strength is there. It's more weight on my legs. I'm a pretty small person, so throwing a 50-pound rec bag on me, you know, that's, you know, easily, you know, more than a third of my weight, almost half my weight. So it's, you know, it's getting used to that and then watching my heart rate and knowing, am I, you know, am I going to bonk? Am I going to go too high and wear myself out and not be able to run after I put this thing down? Mm-hmm. So I don't focus too much on running with it, but I do weighted carries because I know it's going to be a part of, you know, the racing that I'm doing. Right. Well, I'll share with you, if you've not seen it yet, one of the workouts that I have in my quiver is hill repeats that are weighted. And it's unique in the way I do it. So let's say, for example, that we're looking at a hill that's about 25% grade. Mm -hmm. I'm not really keen on real steep grades, by the way. I'd rather see you run harder up a lesser grade, grade still, but not a real steep grade where it really starts to... Uh, have influence over your running mechanics. Mm -hmm. And then I have you run up the hill with like 25 to 30% of your body weight. You could have a vest. You could carry kettlebells. You can carry dumbbells. Whatever you can carry that you can effectively get up that hill. And then drop it off when you get to the top. Jog down. Then run back up the hill without the weight as fast as you can. Okay. Grab the weight when you get to the top. Bring it back down. Wait till your heart rate recovers and repeat. All right. In essence, what happens is you get that overload. You come down easily. Then you run up hard without the overload. Your body's still looking for that overload. You find a few gears you didn't have before. And then as you start to repeat that process, you'll start noticing that you're getting better and better at carrying that load up the hill. That makes sense. I like that. You like it? I don't think I've seen that one yet. You haven't. Looking forward to it. It's coming. (laughs) I got a couple good ones that you haven't seen yet. Excellent. I like hearing that. (laughs) All right. What else does he have here? Okay. So I think I've already touched on this. He said, what could alter general threshold results from testing? Well, there's a lot of things that will influence your threshold. For example, if you're trying to cause your threshold to go up, meaning that your threshold will be at higher heart rates, the most powerful influence you can have is spend an appreciable amount of your training aerobically. And I'm not talking about really, really low aerobic intensity, but staying in that sweet spot that I prescribe when we do the test. Yep. And I'm going to give you a, a number that is going to be what I consider to be, based on scientific evidence of your body, what would be the most appropriate heart rate to get the greatest return for your investment. 
And by spending a lot of time doing that, that's going to have a lot of influence over moving that threshold. And then the other thing is motor skill development drills that I do. Once you kind of get more economically efficient, you're going to start noticing that you're able to take on more work without going anaerobic. Yep. And so those probably would be my two positions for improving threshold. All right, one more. He's got a lot of questions. <laughs> Should all pre-testing protocols be the same as far as rests, fuel intake, or any type of external stimulus, i.e. meds, probably coffee, and how much, or excuse me, how might these differences impact training or race conditions? If I were to test you twice, meaning that you come to see me, I've tested you, you've gone off, you've done some work, eight to 12 weeks later, you want to retest to see how things are going, uh, we want to replicate the circumstances best we could. So if the first day I saw you, you were well-rested and you were hydrated and everything was golden, and then you try to come back to me after a big workout, you're beat down, you haven't been sleeping well, odds are the relative information is going to be skewed. Absolutely. So we absolutely want to make sure that that data is going to be comparative, and then we want to replicate those circumstances as best we can. And then as far as impact on training and race conditions, well, once we've got this information from you, it's the data that's spilling out over time that's going to really make a difference in our racing and training. We're going to start to realize what we can get away with and what we can't, what intensities are reasonable, and from a race perspective, if, if uh, you have to have a sustained pace for a long time, you'll know at 10 beats higher, it's not going to work. I think the answer to that question is, once you have that information, initially or even the second time around, as you adapt to those data points in your training, you'll learn from the information and you'll be in a much better place. I agree. I think and learning how to use the information, you know, if you just are given the given your you know, your VO2 and your lactic threshold and your anaerobic capacity and, you know, you're given all these numbers, it's just data. And if you don't know what to do with that data, I think that plays a big piece of it. But really paying attention and then utilizing it is how you're going to get better. Absolutely. And by the way, since you made that point, it is not uncommon for me to have people tell me that where they live, they're going to get a VO2 test done, they want to send me the report, and then they want me to work from that information to guide them. Now, clearly... When they send me the information, I'm going to get a lot more from it than most people, given mm -hmm. that I've been doing this for over 20 years. But I'm not able to see how the test was conducted and how the person responded to the protocols. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with people, I love being able to test them because once I've done that, I know what triggers were responsible for causing these episodes to occur. So, for example, if I start throwing speed at you and the speed has had grave influence over your heart rate or your lactate production, uh, as opposed to, for example, going up a steeper hill, then I'm learning something about you. And the heart rate that's exhibited in a report won't tell me that. You know what I'm saying? So if I'm blindly yeah. looking at somebody else's report and we see that at 160 beats per minute that you're, you went over a threshold, well, I don't really know what the trigger was that caused that to happen. Mm -hmm. Where I might have caused someone to go faster 
and they could have, could have gone longer or into greater heart rate before the threshold was broached, or the hill triggered it. So I'd like to see what's happening, and based on what I see, it has a lot of influence over the information I provide. Absolutely, and we did that too. You know, I sent you the one the test that I had right. done last year, and we just didn't. There wasn't enough information to really know what caused it, and yeah, so that's why I'm coming out now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, again, I had a list, and we've been kind of like handling the questions first, and I guess in uh, the spirit of looking at the the ten tips that Alberto Salazar posted, I created a few of my own, and I actually mirrored some of the tips that he offered up because I agreed with them, but they didn't necessarily land in the same order. And so my number one tip, the first thing that you need to do as a runner, and I don't care whether you run an OCR, you're running a marathon, you're going to run a 10K, you're just going to pick up running recreationally because you want to get in shape, playing soccer, I don't care what it is. If running is involved, the very first thing you need to do if you're really smart about this is to identify the flaws in the way you're moving. Yep. I tell people this all the time, and it's hard to swallow, but you have really no business adding volume or intensity to your training unless you're pretty confident that the way you're moving is correct. Because if there, I've always hated running. Yeah, well, if there's corruptions in the way you move and you push yourself harder, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Absolutely. I want to quote a friend of mine by the name of Jay DeSherry. Jay DeSherry is a physical therapist, and he's probably one of the best gait analysis guys in the country. He's actually running a couple uh, sports gait analysis facilities in Oregon at, at the time. And he said this, you cannot fire a cannon from a canoe. Yep. Focus being that trying to go hard, increasing intensity when you don't have a foundation to move from is not going to go well. And then it comes back down to your strength versus your weight. If you're strong enough, light enough, you can get away with a lot. But everyone has a break point, whether it be a 140-pound strong athlete, six-foot tall. He may be able to run 100 miles a week before he runs into any complications. Mm -hmm. Where at the same token, if you took someone that was as tall as he was, six-foot tall, and 250 pounds, if they progressively throw too much load, volume, intensity into the training, it's a hell-bound train. They are going to injure themselves sooner than later. Definitely. And so the problem with this thought process is that people typically do not have the patience to wait to correct the problems. They just want to go. They want to get in the game. Put me <laughs> in. Charged. Yeah. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. Yes. Right? Exactly. Just let me go. Let me add it. Right. Well, and I tell people change takes time, but it doesn't take a lifetime. You can make some significant improvements in the way you move if you first identify what the problems are and then set about making these changes. And by the way, this is how I make my living. Certainly, I don't do it as a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
Um, the next thing I have on my list is do not trust your perception. We have a tendency to have a greater opinion of ourselves than we deserve. You might think that you're doing a great job with the way you're running through outside observation, whether it be somebody shooting video of you or a friend watching you run, you'll find that, in fact, you may not be doing what you think you're doing. And what I guess I'm referring to is heel strikers versus proper midfoot runners. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there that are under the impression that they're running on their midfoot. In fact, they're running on their heels. And they can't identify the reason that they're having the problems that they're having because they're living this false sense of what they're actually doing. And, you know, this is part of the reason why I video people. is not because I really need to see it to know what they're doing. I mean, it helps me a lot. But more importantly, I can show them what they're doing, and that's the come-to-Jesus meeting they needed in order for them to correct the problems. So get over yourself. Be patient. Allow people to help you. Get an extra set of eyes on your work so you can find out if, in fact, you're making mistakes so that you're closer to making the solutions to correct them. Well, and finding that expert. You know, I mean, I think nowadays everybody thinks they're an expert, but they're really not. So finding someone that is credible, you know, has the the people that can back them up to say, yes, they really helped me and, you know, trust that, you know, trust what you read and trust what, you know, the information that's out there to get the right person and not just your buddy that's, you know, been doing it for a couple of years and thinks he knows it all. Not that there's anything wrong with having your friends help you out, but, you know, sometimes you got to take that extra step and, you know, find the expert and really... You know, make sure you're getting the good data and not just trusting everyone else. Yeah, well, let me just say that even in the best of hands, you can still screw it up. Absolutely. You know, and so, for example, I have people that I work with that will let me know that they're running into issues with the way they're moving. Or they'll say, I'm hurt. My shin is bothering. I've got a client right now. He's going through some shin splint issues. Mm. And I said, look, shoot me some video. I want to see some video of you running towards the camera. I want to see what you're doing. And I pointed out to him what he was doing wrong, and now we've gone to work on making the corrections. It helped him to have that extra set of eyes and the video to support what I was telling him. So he understands very clearly now what it was he was doing that was causing the problem. Because if you understand anatomical region and you understand the cause and effect relationship with the work you're doing, you could pretty readily see logically what is going wrong with what you're doing. And so that's been a great help to me. It's been a great help to my clients. And incidentally, again, this is someone that does not live near me. I'm not looking at him. i got video on him. And, for example, with things that you do out in Ohio where you live, I could still provide you with good advice on the way you're moving if I just have the information in front of me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've sent you numerous videos treadmill and running outside just to say, hey, am I doing it right? You know, check-ins, make sure it's I am progressing and changing and doing what you're, what I think you're telling me to do. Right. And so the other thing is being consistent. You, you need to be consistent with your training. And consistency and patience, I think, need to go hand in hand. So I get a lot of people that want to get, they want to get in front row. They want to go fast. They want to go hard. They want to chase their buddy. Where you know, if you're slowed it all down and just got a little bit more consistent with the volume you're trying to generate and be more conscientious of the way you're moving, 
so that it eventually becomes who you are, not this foreign thing that you're trying to do. And you'll start noticing that the improvements start coming along pretty nicely, and you start becoming more capable of taking on more and more volume. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is to take your recovery days seriously. And this is a real problem in OCR. <laughs> it's freaking retarded. I've got to be honest with you, okay? I think you yelled at me the first time we talked. Oh, like, you know, yeah, I race Saturday and Sunday, and you're like, uh, over my dead body. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> well, you know, I've got to tell you, I've got friends out there and clients out there. They'll drop the bomb on me. They'll say, oh, by the way, I'm racing Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> you gotta kind of mumble that to you, so right? Catch it. And, and then what they're really trying to tell me is they're not only going to race Saturday and Sunday; they're going to race twice on Sunday. <laughs> oh Jesus! Going to race on Saturday hard and try to get through Sunday. And so, you know, in sport, the whole concept of periodization, organizing work over time, and causing the work to be progressive in volume, progressive in intensity. Just having a concept of developing the body so that come race day that you're 100% ready to go, yep. that doesn't happen in this sport. If you're racing every week, you do not have enough time to get yourself in a better place, especially if you've raced back-to-back -back on a Saturday and a Sunday hard. So you know the scenario, right? You do, you do like a super, you do um, a beast, and a sprint. Uh, what are we talking about here? We're talking about 14 to 24, call it 30 miles worth of hard racing with obstacles over the weekend. It's not a good idea? Well, what happens is, <laughs> so you're go obviously you're going to need Monday off, right? And right. You, Actually, need, you know, yeah. you're face down Monday, complaining that everything hurts. <laughs> Maybe you've got some wounds on your body that are still open. <laughs> Yep. Right. And then and then Tuesday you go out and try to shake it out and oh it's still kinda ugly. And come Wednesday you're starting to feel a little bit better. So you got like a half ass workout on Wednesday. Maybe you get pretty decent workout on Thursday. Guess what? Friday you've got to stop working because you're gonna race on Saturday again. Yep. Now I'm just trying to find where the progression in work in volume and super compensation resided in the course of that type of training week. And it just doesn't. So, um, yeah. Part of that problem, too, is just, you know, with the race schedule, obviously it's hard to, you know, like being in Ohio, there aren't a whole lot of races out here. You know, they, they're all fighting for each other on the same weekends. So I have friends that, you know, I'm going to do the Spartan race on Saturday and then go do Tough Mudder on Sunday. And then the next weekend is mud guts and glory and i have to do that one because it's local and you know i get in that boat because i mean i travel a lot but it's expensive it's difficult it's hard you know i'm racing this weekend in monterey and next weekend i'm in chicago so it's you know but then after that it's a month between races so i can have some of that periodization and get back to basic training but those two weeks really disrupt the training schedule because for lack of you know where where the races are located to me i've got to adjust to that as well well, my advice to you is pick your fights. You want to pick fights you're going to win. Sure. And fighting all the time, it's inevitable that you're going to lose some of those fights. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I work with some pros. Absolutely. And what I try to get them to understand is that 
it's better to win when you show up, even if you show up less often, than to show up now and then and fall outside the podium. Right. Simply because you just weren't in 100% condition to race. What ends up happening when a pro shows up at a race and they fall off the podium? Nobody says, well, you know, he raced and won the week before, so he's probably a little put out. It just shows up off the winning circle, right? You just that's, that's one of the check marks you didn't get to have. Yep. And when you're writing your resume, looking for sponsors, it's better to have 10 races over the course of the season that you won or podiumed opposed to 20 races, and it's all over the map because you're sixth place, fifth place, third place, won a race, fifth place, sixth place, won a race, because all they do when somebody's looking at that resume they're counting the wins. Sure, <laughs> yeah. They don't or, care about the other ones. <laughs> right, or they're, or they're counting the losses, you know. It just, you just become a data point. So I just I just think it's better to pick your races, pick your fights. Yep. So, All right, so we've been at this for a little while. I've got one more thing I want to touch on, and this is a good tip. So anyone that has lived through this so far, this one's for you. You can't expect that you're going to race faster than you train. You can't do a whole lot of low-intensity work in your training and expect that you're going to look, for example, you're training at a nine-minute pace. You can't expect that come race day you're going to pull out a seven-minute pace. You just don't have that in your, in your quiver. It's not going to be there for you. You have to visit speed. And in order to get to speed, you have to go and do your due diligence so that you're running well. Your force production off the ground is going to improve. Your stride frequency, your stride length, all these components are going to come together. You're going to produce greater speeds at less cost. But let's just assume that everything is going well, that you've figured out how to run well. Your contact point with the ground is good. Your stride length is good. All that stuff's happening, and your speed is about topped out. Okay, drum roll. Here we go. Your speed lives in your arms, not your legs. Oh. I want you to think about what I just said. Your speed lives in your arms. If you want to find that extra gear when it comes time to sprint to the finish line and beat the guy off the podium, you've got to start moving your arms because your, your legs will chase your arms. It's a neurological adaptation. If you don't believe me, jog in place and then double your arm speed and watch what your feet do. You'll see that your feet will actually chase your arms. When you think you're tapped out and you're looking for your legs to do something that they just don't want to do, start getting those arms in play. Start really pumping those arms. And when you start pumping those arms, you'll start noticing your legs will start turning over faster and you're going to get that extra gear that you've been looking for. That makes sense just based off the form corrections I've made that you've given me. I've noticed that when I start focusing on my arms more, my speed does increase. That's that's amazing. And I think it's important to note that your arms need to be moving in the appropriate range. They can't be crossing your chest or or crossing your body or pumping way up ahead of your, your face. You've got to get those arms to drag you forward, and there's an appropriate arm swing to cause that to happen which is what I share with you and most of my clients. Mm -hmm. But when you start to move those arms well and you start to use them is essentially the accelerator 
on on your system, you'll start noticing you'll find gears that you didn't have before. Yep. If you start thinking, come on, legs, don't fail me now, and you're trying to get them to work for you, they're tired. They need a boost. And it's like you hit that nitro switch by getting your legs moving again. Really, it shouldn't be, hey, legs, get moving. It should be, hey, arms. Yeah, let me move those arms and watch my legs just chase them. Yep. And so anybody that's racing this weekend in Monterey and you've heard this, and you start finding that gear that you didn't have before, I want you to come up to me and say, you know, Richard, I'm not busy. Can I buy you a beer? <laughs> Which I owe you one, by the way. <laughs> All right. So uh, there was a couple others, but we're running out of time. Any thoughts? What have what we not touched on that you'd like to, to bring to light here, Amber? So one thing, when I, you know, I have an athletic training background, personal training background. I've done some research. It's been a while on the heart rate training, but I'm, fo- I'm foggy on it. It was never my strong point. I always heard the saying, you train slow, race faster, or something along those lines. Basically, you know, you spend more time training aerobically, you spend more time training at a lower heart rate, and when you get out there and race, you're actually going to race faster. Now, you kind of said the opposite of that with your last tip here. So really, and just a quick, you know, one-minute blurb, 30-second blurb, whatever, how would you describe heart rate training? Why is it important, and how does it really how does well, that, how do you, how do you sum it up? Okay, good. So it's a good question. First of all, most people that run intuitively, they run at a pace that is right about midway on their threshold. And for those, of you, again, those of you that don't understand what this means, your metabolic consequence at that point is essentially mud. You're not really truly aerobic. You're not really truly anaerobic. You're just kind of in the mud. And all of the training intensity they throw out there is pretty similar all the time. And so you got guys like uh, Phil Maffetone that came out, and you know his revelation was start spending a lot of time aerobically, and you're going to start improving your race times. Now, where being aerobic for greater lengths of time is going to have a huge influence over your training repertoire, it's going to help you in a lot of ways, being aerobic is not going to improve your speed. The only way that you're going to be able to go fast is if you visit speed. But you need to do it with good form. You need to teach yourself to run well at speed. And briefly at first, you have to visit speed. And, you know, the claims of Mark Allen winning Ironman and all of his training was below threshold, I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. I I mean, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I promise you, in order for him to start looking at those five-minute sustainable paces, he would have needed to spend some time improving his skill sets at pace. You have to do it. It isn't one thing or the other. It's not like go slow to be fast. That is just not enough information. That's just not enough process in order to get you where you're trying to go. Sure. I think the concept was around the strengthening your heart, though. You spend more time in, like, aerobic to strengthen your heart, obviously doing the speed work. No, see, you don't, though. Okay. You, you don't, you're strengthening your heart. Realize your heart is a muscle. Mm-hmm. It's nothing right. more than a pump. The myocardium is what it's referred to, is the musculature that's, that is the pump. And these, these ventricles in your heart that are processing blood need overload in order to improve their strength. Ejection fraction, the amount of blood you're able to pump into the working body, 
is a function of how forceful these contractions occur. Low intensity running is not going to go very far to improving that ejection fraction and stroke volume and cardiac output. That's a function of high intensity training. So for example, and, and you know in the training that I've offered you, uh-huh. I have you doing hill repeats. Yep. And I have you do hill repeats while you're still trying to figure out how to run well on a flat ground. Yeah. Because the angle in which you're running on that hill is going to improve your fitness while you're trying to figure out what to do with your running at these low rates of speed. Yep. Absolutely. When I feel like I run better on a hill than I do flat, so Yeah. Fitness lives in high intensity work. I, I used to I used to make the joke about fitness and fatness. If you want to drop body fat, you have to be aerobic because your body will learn to mechanize fat stores more efficiently. Uh-huh. If you want to improve your fitness, you need to get over a threshold and you need to do some interval repeats at those higher intensities. Yep. And again, if you do them on a hill, you, you just discount the concern of running form. Yeah. So fitness comes from high-intensity work. Aerobic potential, the ability to burn fat, is going to come when you put in the aerobic conditioning, which is below threshold. Awesome. Well, Amber, I'm going to see you in the morning. And yes. We're, and we're going to put some of these theories to practice. Absolutely. I look forward to it. I promise you, you're going to get lit up. You're going to you're going to go into Monterey with all kinds of stuff in your head. You're probably going to wear the people out that you're riding with in the car for that four-and-a-half-hour drive up to uh, Monterey. Okay, I'm sure my, my, my machete uh, team can handle it. They, yeah. uh, they don't get to hang out with me often enough anyway, so they'll yeah. be uh, yeah. driving crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, I assume you're going to do the the super? Yes. One race? Just one. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, we'll see you in the morning. Thank you so much for doing this with us. You want to do a shout-out? Oh, man. Well, my my, uh, Brociar team, thank you, guys. My Machete team, thank you. And, of course, my son and my boyfriend for supporting and putting up with me doing all this crazy stuff. Cool. Well, thanks again, and we'll see you in the morning. All right. See you in the morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.